Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Hey there. Welcome to episode 56 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. Today, my guest is Chef Lamar Moore, who's just opened the steakhouse Buxy and Mears in Las Vegas and won the TV cooking competition show Vegas Chef Prize Fight on Food Network. We talk about him leaving Chicago, the food scene in Vegas, his role as a mentor to the community of young African-American chefs. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche, and if you are new to the podcast, I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the U.S., and every other week, I interview trending chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists around the country. If you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe to it and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and on Facebook at Flavors Unknown. And you can find the show notes from all the episodes on the website flavorsunknown.com. And now, here is my conversation with Chef Lamar Moore. Hi, Chef. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm very good, and I'm very excited to to have you on uh, the show Flavors Unknown. I just wanted to uh, start by asking you what's you know how are you doing during um, you know this um, the time of uh, of the pandemic, these crazy times that we are living in. Yeah, it is crazy, and uh, maybe I'm just a tad bit crazier. I um, am re- relocated here to Las Vegas, working with uh, Caesar's Entertainment at Flamingo Hotel. And we decided to open up a steakhouse during the pandemic uh, a few months back in June. So are you guys open now? Yeah, we're open. So we did soft opening on June 18th for two weeks. And then we went live for reservations on uh, July 3rd, where we were open five days a week. And just up until two days ago, now we're open seven days a week from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. Okay, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I really appreciate that you find the time to, uh, to be on the show. I understand that it's the world is really busy at the moment. It's really interesting that because the you know the steakhouse that uh, you are part of, like the opening with the, the Caesar Group, is in fact the result of you winning food competition show on TV, which you know from the Food Network, which is the the Vegas Chef Prize Fight. Correct. So, can you tell us a little bit about the the premise of the show because it's really different from like other, let's say, cooking competition show that are on the TV? Actually, coincidentally, this time last year, I myself and eight and seven other chefs from throughout the United States were chosen to compete on a show, Food Network's Vegas Chef Prize Fight. It was their first season and first ever taking of the show. And the prize was to be the head chef of a renovated $10 million, well, $10 million renovation of a new steakhouse in the Flamingo Hotel. We it aired early this year from March all the way to the middle of April, which again, you know, the goal was to open up, you know, in April. And then now that changed during the pandemic. So we were here in Las Vegas and taped for six weeks. We cooked at a lot of different Caesars properties. And every week we were challenged to, you know, to also lead the teams, to compete against each other and to basically be ourselves and show our culinary point of view. and. I came out on top, and what's what's awesome is this third time's a charm. It's my third time competing on Food Network, and came out as a winner this time. 
Yeah, that's why I wanted to uh, to ask you because you competed in you know other food shows before. So how was this one different from beside, of course, obviously the the end price, but how was it different from um, you know the the other shows that you have done? You know, I think like when I go back to Chop, you know, that's kind of you know forty five minutes in the moment. You're cooking, you go, and you know, as chefs, we're taught to think fast on our feet, and so that was kind of my an introduction to cooking on TV. And I will say, you know, I had a lot of nervousness and jitters and what I got asked for was a burger. You know, we'll talk more about burger a little bit later. I, I kind of fine tuned my burgers and gotten better at that. And then my second time was uh, Beat Bobby Flay, which coincidentally was last year also. And I felt very comfortable about being on Beat Bobby Flay. I felt comfortable about the food that I put out and, you know, just couldn't quite edge my competitor, you know, in making some awesome toast. But I felt great about what I did. And when I look at Vegas Chef Prize Fight, you know, you're competing on a weekly basis. So you're a little bit more settled in. You know, I've learned to take some of the mistakes I made in the past and not really focus on the camera, but focus on, you know, my culinary point of view and putting out some really, really great food. And my background was able to proceed itself and being able to compete, you know, against some of the best chefs in, in the world, per se. And so, you know, each week I competed on a high level and I was able to get in the heads of a lot of the chefs that I competed against and make sure that I set myself apart from what they did. So that was a lot of the big differences. What makes you say like one day I want to be there? I want to be part of, you know, that adventure on TV because not everyone, you know, is, it's, you know, compelled to do something like this. I agree. You know, as a chef, we try to challenge ourselves more and more. You know, I've been in the industry now 21 years. You know, I worked at a lot of different companies, operations and, you know, I've always watched Chop. So to start with that one, you know, it's always it was a dream of mine to be on TV, to cook on TV, to compete. We love to compete with each other. And I felt, why not, you know, if there's an opportunity for me to do it on television. And I try to explain to chefs, you know, competing and, you know, in a restaurant world and competing on TV are two totally different things. You know, it's being able to, you know, simultaneously control the camera without controlling the camera for say, meaning, you know, you're just cooking your heart out and enjoying yourselves. And then just being able to show the world that, you know, my culinary talent can definitely withstand the strength of, you know, the rest of the talent throughout the world. And and I wanted to be able to showcase my talent on TV and, you know, the opportunities arise and, and I continue to, to stay with it. Yeah. And I think it's not only about like the food, but as well about like, it's almost like a stage presence, you know, and kind of like a connection with, we can say like the camera. And I have to say that your wonderful smile translate like very well on TV. <laughs> so I'm sure a lot of people said that to you. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You're absolutely correct. And, and, you know, I'll talk about that real quickly. You know, I never realized that that would be something that would be a big part of, you know, my growth on television. But, you know, it did. And we talk about that, you know, from a television standpoint, you start to look at yourself and understand what your culinary point of view is and also your personality. So some of my takeaways from doing Chopped and also Beat Bobby Flay is that I was able to grow more into myself and really, really be happy about, more happy about who I am and to display it on TV. And coincidentally, in between that, you know, non-culinarily, but having some culinary insight, I was on a reality show on Bravo called Welcome to Waverly. And so in, in those, there was a lot of snippets that show, you know, me smiling and laughing and giggling and having fun and you know, that is the type of person that I am. I, I find myself as a fun-loving chef and a person, and I like to have great camaraderie in the kitchens and with people, and I'm a huge people person. I like to give back to communities and, 
you know, when I did Welcome to Waverly, you know, we were stuck in the middle of nowhere in a community. And so it's just continuously, you know, evolving on who I am as a chef and as a person. So uh, I guess my smile has, you know, prevailed more than what I thought. So I, I appreciate the love on that. <laughs> I think it's, I think you have two things that you cannot, uh, you know, get rid of is like your smile and your beard. I think that's part of your signature you know, as a celebrity <laughs> chef. <you know? laughs> so, so I have to give you a lot of credit. You're doing your homework, you know, and I'll tell you a funny story how that started. You know, some years ago, I worked in the stadiums and I would travel a lot. I couldn't find any place to get a haircut. And so my beard and my hair grew very long. And I got back to Chicago and I said, you know, let's keep it and see what it looks like. And, you know, when you start TV, you know, there's a rule of thumb where people get used to a certain look. So when you talk about the smile and the beard, you know, that kind of stuck. And I just stuck with it. And like you said, it's like if you look at Guy Fieri, you know, he has, you know, the yeah. wild blonde hair and, and that's hair. his signature. Yep, yep. So, you know, the smile and the beard has so become you my mantra yours. and I've stuck with it. Exactly. <laughs> right. You found it. You niche, found man. yours. That's pretty good. <laughs> yep, absolutely. absolutely. You have to stick to it. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in marketing, so I can relate to it. So I, I think I, I congratulations. I think it's great. <laughs> Thank, thank you. I appreciate it. Let's be a bit more serious here at the like a, a minute. But so you are, you know, in this phase of like opening this, you know, restaurant, the steakhouse, Bugsy and Mayer's, you're correct, steakhouse in, uh, in the Flamingo in Las Vegas. Yes. So how, what's your approach when you are starting like a restaurant, a new restaurant from scratch? What are like the, the important steps? And then I'm guessing as well, how do you go about creating like a, a, like a new menu? I'm guessing you need to have like the staples from a steakhouse, but you need to bring us as well your own signature. People are expecting this from, from you. So just curious about the process. Well, you know, Caesars as a whole, you know, it's, it's collective, you know, aspirations, aspirations on the menu. You know, I have a great executive chef who's been with the company for over 15 years. I have an exec Sue who's very talented and has been in the industry for over 10 years. Same thing with my sous chef. And to your point, I mean, it used to be a steakhouse, you know, in place of where Bugsy and Myers is called Centricut. And so very, very old school. If you look at the hotel, it's very old school. And, you know, my general manager, you know, he has a saying, which I think is so funny and cliche. He said, you know, now we have a Ferrari in an old garage. And so a lot of us <laughs> culinarily, we're, we're different and the same. And we do, we have a lot of the classics. You know, you would think on the steak, obviously, a New York strip. You have a ribeye, 16, 20 ounce. We do bone in, bone out. We have a dry aging cage, which is synonymous to what we do. And so in planning the menu, we wanted to have a steakhouse, but we want to be very different from everyone else. Obviously, everyone has steak Oscar, you know, which is, you know, the Bernays, you know, with the crab on top. But then we do things where we add some coolness to it. Like I love and if you look on the show that the first episode. You know, I did, you know, Cajun ribeye. So my Cajun spice is offered on the steaks if people want it black on occasion. So that gives a little bit more of my feel to that. We have what we call steak enhancements, you know, with the steak Oscar, where I have one which I enjoy bacon and eggs, where you can get, you know, a piece of rye toast. You have our uh, pork belly or bacon is hung in our dry aging. So it's dry aged. We slice it. We sear it in a pan and we add a little bit of bourbon maple syrup to it and a sunny egg. Nice. And I love bourbon. You know, people that know me know oh, that I yeah. really enjoy bourbon and cigars. And, you know, why not have some bourbon and maple and a little bit of egg on top? You know, we obviously offer foie gras, which is, you know, some people, you know, that know about it, they enjoy it. And so from the menu planning, it's, you know, added to some of the, the old history 
you know, into, you know, what Flamingo is about and what Las Vegas is about along with Caesars Entertainment, but then being able to do some fun and cool things on the menu. Like we, like one of our advertisers, I really love, we do a, a coconut shrimp. I love sweet and spicy. You know, it's, it has a coconut sambal in there, which has some spicy notes in there, some toasted coconut on there as well, a little bit of lime and a honeydew and daikon salad right on the side. So it's having some versatility on the menu. Obviously, you go to a seafood steakhouse, they have crab cakes. We make our crab cakes in-house. One of our secret ingredients in there is most of the time when you're making crab cakes, it has raw egg. We actually put a boiled egg in there. We don't use a lot of binder and have a nice fennel slaw on the side. And it's become one of our you know, more popular items. When we thought macaroni and cheese, of course, we have to have lobster mac and cheese. And I have to say that our lobster mac and cheese is divine. I, I think it's really, really good. And it definitely What stands, is your twist on, you know, the, on the lobster mac and cheese? So our twist is we use uh, a lot of lobster tail meat in there. Uh, our pasta is tubetti. So tubetti is like little small tubes. And we add a little, uh, a touch of our um, lobster bisque in there too to give more of a rich flavor. I mean, you had me already when you talk about foie gras, you know, being French, you know, <laughs> I love foie gras. And then bourbon. So yeah, that's my, you know, my favorite whiskey as well. So do you have any favorites in, in bourbon? What's your go-to? Oh, yeah. Oh, and so... I have two. I really love Bullet and I really love Angel's Envy. Those are like my oh, top yeah. two favorites. You know, I like to smoke a cigar. I mean, today's my off day. I'll probably, you know, having a cigar later. I love Cohibas. They're really, really, you know, nice yeah, and relaxed. Sure. And, you know, I can dip the end of my cigar in one of those. And, you know, if I want to go a little bit of sweet, I'll add a little bit of Grand Marnier on there too and, you okay. know, enjoy it. So next time in Vegas, I know where I need to uh, knock on the door. <laughs> so we have a we have a bourbon together. <laughs> oh, absolutely, so, man! Absolutely. How does it feel for you to leave Chicago? Because that's your hometown, correct? You're you're from Chicago. I know you've been all over the place and so on, but you know you you've been there. So so now you're going to Vegas. So so how does it feel? Chicago is always, obviously, to your point, is very bittersweet. You know, Chicago is my home. 90% of my family is in Chicago and friends. And, you know, over the last, you know, seven years, I've become to make a, to be a big part of the culinary scene in Chicago. So, it was, you know, difficult to leave Chicago, but, you know, I'm always up for a challenge too. And, you know, when you get an opportunity to go to a different city and make a mark and, and it's nothing like Vegas, you know, to be able to do that, I was excited about the challenge and the opportunity. Do I miss Chicago and my friends? Absolutely, 100%. But I have an opportunity here to to do something cool and different. And, and you know, once the dust settles, especially, hopefully, God, you know, soon we'll get past, you know, COVID, you know, visiting Chicago, be more on the radar and, you know, doing some cool, fun events with a lot of my chefs and friends and cooking out, you know, having some cookouts with my family and, you know, inviting some of my family. I hear a lot of my family hasn't been out here yet from Chicago, too, so. You know, to be able to experience Vegas very, very differently, uh, it's been a chore. Sure, yeah, maybe do some collaboration with uh, Chicago chefs in uh, in your steakhouse too in in Vegas. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, that is on the radar. <laughs> How would you describe like the Vegas scene, and uh, you know, from a culinary dining scene standpoint, and how is it different from from Chicago? Well, I'll tell you a few things. One that I appreciate, especially being a chef and working a lot of hours. I would never would have thought that I could go and enjoy fine dining food and, and I'll go even higher a steakhouse, you know, after one o'clock in the morning. And I don't know the parent company, but I go frequently to the point I go almost once a week. So they have two concepts. One is called herbs and rye and the other one is called cleaver. And it's a steakhouse and a bar. And I think that they're geared for, for people that are in the industry 
And you can walk into that place like you walk into my restaurant and sit down and have great service, great cocktails and drinks and steak and seafood on their menu. And if I add after 12 a.m., they have happy hour. So you can go in, for example, oh, like wow. I love a 16 ounce ribeye. A regular price on the menu is $67 and it's half off. So oh, that's cool. I think that, wow. that you can't do that in Chicago. And I find so many places where I'm comfortable, where I can get off work at you know, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. And if I want to be taken care of greatly, I can. If I want to go to a bar, you know, I, there are a few local bars close to where I live and I can go and have great drinks and sit in front of the TV and, you know, check up on my sports and, you know, have a great meal at one, two o'clock in the morning, three, four, five, who cares? There's a lot of places like that here in Las Vegas that you don't have in Chicago. So, you know, I'm very appreciative of that because then I don't, you know, necessarily miss out on those opportunities. And what you are talking about, it's probably outside of the strip, correct? It would be yeah, other parts you know, of Las well, Vegas. Yeah. Interestingly enough, both of their locations, if you were staying on a strip in one of the hotels, yeah. it's like a 10 minute Uber ride to both places. So it's not that far okay. off the strip, which is even Very cooler. Cool. Let's go back in, in time and curious about how you get started and, and what compelled you to, to become a chef. It's a twofold. So I grew up around my grandmother a lot because my mom worked and I saw my grandmother cooking all the time. She cooked for us. She cooked for people that couldn't cook for themselves. So I got to see her cook food for us as a family. And I got to see her help people that, you know, needed a hand or needed a meal. And so I kind of took on that echelon. And actually from both my grandmothers, I took a lot of their recipes and honed them. Even to this day, I have them. I mean, I've utilized them on the menus. And it gave me an opportunity to help communities and friends and people. I never would have thought that I would take on that. But I think, you know, a lot of it is, you know, embedded in my heart. And I, you know, took the journey of going to culinary school. My grandmother pushed me to do it when I was a kid. And so did my mom. I was able to not only cook as a chef and as a cook, but also to help communities. You know, when I moved to California back in 2003, man, that seems so long ago. And I started helping companies, you know, do charity events, cooking for kids, you know, helping the communities that we worked in and that I lived in. And as I got older and I moved back to Chicago in 2009, you know, I continued that same, you know, that same spirit of giving back to local communities, you know, having partnerships with local grocery stores like Mariano's. I've done immense amount of things with them in the communities and giving back, you know, local churches, you know, Chef Piers. I have a buddy in Chicago, Chef Eric Williams, who owns uh, Virtue. And like he came up with a great idea, I think it was a few years ago. He's like, hey, chef, you know, I grew up on the west side of Chicago and I have this area that, you know, you're probably familiar with Garfield Park. And for Father's Day, I just want to do a cookout. I don't want to charge anybody. I just want to get together. You know, again, I call Mariano's. They donated some product. We, we threw down some ribs, you know, all different types of cakes and pies and fruit. And it was just a really good time and really good, awesome thing to see, you know, in the communities, in the neighborhood. And then now, you know, flash forward up until this year, when you think about you know the pandemic, to be able to do some of the same things, but very differently. You know, I work with World City Kitchen, where working with a local restaurant group in 5050, you know, I've known those guys since they had one restaurant. And it was an opportunity for me to help the communities, to help the frontline workers, but also to help these partners to be able to, you know, hire, rehire more staff. And to push out meals out of there, uh, out of one of their newest operations. And we work collaboratively as a team to be able to push out meals for everybody. I mean, you know, from the communities, you know, every day they were feeding 
unemployed restaurant workers. They just show their ID and then come and get a meal. It was awesome. He, you know, getting product from companies like Cisco and, and, and some other dairy companies where, you know, they, you know, obviously couldn't, they didn't, they were sitting on product because the restaurants were closed down and, you know, getting donations to be able to feed as, as many people as possible, you know, feeding homeless people, you know, anybody that needed a meal. That's something that I watched my grandmother do when I was a kid. She would, you know, drive down the street. And if we had meals left over from church, she would go and give meals away, doing community drives for Thanksgiving and handing out turkeys in past companies that I work with. So, you know, it's so important to me as a person and as a chef to to give back to communities. And I do it through food. Yeah. Okay. So your grandmother or your grandmothers, you know, uh, were, you know, your first mentors almost. So who were some of your other mentors, like more in the, in the industry? And what are like the biggest lessons that you have learned from them? You know, one of my biggest ones, his name was uh, Shay Michael Robinson. He was a chef that took me under his wing when I relocated from Chicago to San Jose, California. And I was very young at that time. I was, I think I just turned 21. And we talked about a lot of my aspirations and goals. And I can tell you that everything that I sought out to do, he was right there to guide me, not only as a chef, but also as a person. And, you know, the other piece to that is, you know, when as I was coming up in the industry, I worked for a lot of different companies as a younger culinarian. I didn't see a lot of African-American chefs either. So that was kind of some, you know, hesitancy there for me to really, really cultivate and grow. He was able to help hone in my skill again as a person, as a chef. And when I moved out of Chicago, another chef, gosh, I can't think his name. It'll come to mind when I worked in the stadium. So I used to work for the Bears. You know, he was kind of the same. Oh, Mark Angelus. He was the same, same exact way. You know, he saw a lot of aggression and aptitude of me wanting to get back and mentor and help. And he was instrumental in me, you know, being able to mentor a lot of students and kids throughout the stadium because the stadium is, you know, large. We would cook for 65, 70,000 people. And throughout the week, you know, I was responsible for a minimum of, of 100 mentees that we would spread throughout the stadium. And he and I would help, you know, judge a lot of competitions. We would hire a lot of the students. We would mentor them. And I say, you know, here, here we are years later. A lot of my mentees and are now, you know, executive chefs for operations. You know, one of my older mentees is now the chef de cuisine for the Chicago Bears. And I remember 10 years ago when she was just an intern. And so that's what this industry is about. And I've had people that mentor me. And it's important for me to continue to echelon through other people. I mean, you mentioned something about, you know, uh, African-American chef. And I was shocked, you know, when I was looking at, um, you know, building, you know, the, the different topics for our discussion that, you know, there's less than 18% of chefs that are African-American. I read something that you said that uh, you said that we have to work twice as hard just to keep up and three times as hard to earn the opportunity. You know, in the day and now days and age, you know, it's, it's really shocking for me, you know, saying that American, African-American chef, you know, don't get the same opportunities as others. I mean, it's nothing new, unfortunately. Do you think that things are slightly evolving or there's still a lot of room, you know, for growth, you know, in the restaurant industry? Um, I believe there's still a lot of room. You know, I was just talking to a writer a few weeks back, you know, and she was explain, expressing to me, and this is a writer in Chicago, about a young culinarian who experienced some hardships. And I think this chef is 24, 25, and it blew me away. I'm, you know, almost 40. 
And here we are with a young culinary at 24, 25 that is facing things that I faced when I was 21, 22. And I think that, you know, the curve is still very difficult. One thing I will say in a bright note that I'm excited about, you know, as I have, you know, continued my culinary journey, that I have found more African-American chefs than I would have thought in my entire career. And, and the fact that there are a lot out there, it's just having a voice and a sound, you know, for ourselves to be known for who we are and cultivately for what we do. I'll go even further. And I could be wrong on this. I'm still studying and looking. You know, I think that in my position here in Las Vegas, I think I'm the only one on the entire strip. Oh, wow. And I, and I could be I could be wrong. But, you know, as I get more you know, embedded into the communities, into the restaurants, I think that I'm the only one. You know, there is a chef here by by the name of Jeff Henderson. You know, I know he worked for Caesars in the past and some other operations. And I know he's here. Don't know exactly you know, where he is, you know, and, and, and cahoots to. You know, Las Vegas restaurants and casinos and hotels, but you know, I don't think there's any others. Do you have like um, a role model, you know, when it comes to you know African American chef in the U.S.? Absolutely. You know, one of my favorite chefs is Marcus Samuelson. I've studied his career back when he was with Aqua V. You know, up until the point of where he is with Red Rooster and his other operations. I've you know visited Red Rooster in New York quite a few times. Uh, I've met him once. I love his cookbook. I love what he does for the community. I watch how he brings up other chefs throughout, you know, his teams and his his operations. And, you know, I watch what he does on TV, too, which I think is great. His documentaries between, you know, PBS and what he does for BuzzFeed, I think is super awesome. He's very, very calm and collect and he's very, very culinarily sound. And I model myself out to him. I think he does great for our communities and our people. Do you think that's your you know, status of celebrity chefs, you know, that you have acquired now and your recent victory at, um, you know, at the chef prize fight, do you feel that it give even more like empower you to, to show, you know, example, you know, of black excellence to like a younger generation of uh, African-American chef or cooks Ooh, or even in general, I to say. I'd say in general and with African-American chefs, you know, again, to win something is a different pat on the back you know, to work hard at it. You know, I'm grateful for the losses because it pushed me for the win. You know, I don't, I love my time on chop. You know, I learned from that. I love my time on Be Bobby Flay. I learned from that. I love being on Bravo. I learned from that. You know, I faced some racism, you know, being in a smallest, small town city on the Bravo show. And I took that, that chance to be on that show to just, to be a part of my personality and a part of a community that I didn't know anything about and to accept a challenge. And I think that, you know, the more of, you know, what I'm able to do professionally and on TV and the articles, you know, it helps, you know, definitely young African-Americans and, and, uh, and older African-Americans and, and people in general show that, you know, even when you're faced with adversity, you know, there is an opportunity where with hard work meets, you know, uh, destiny and, and you can you can definitely be on top. You know, when I look at, you know, Vegas Chef Prize Fight, there is a point where and I think when I meet a lot of people, when we talk about the show, you know, you could see the momentum you know, push. And there was a lot of different things that I had to do to make that push. And I'll give you an example. You know, one being in Vegas, you know, it doesn't take long to get sucked in in Vegas, you know, very, very quickly. You know, we taped an average of 12 to 16 hours a day. You know, that's about how an average chef's time to work. Now you add in the TV aspect of it, where there's a lot of waiting, there's a lot of cooking, there's a lot of talking, and you have to take care of yourself and your body in order to compete on a high level on a weekly basis. And I quarantined myself to be able to, you know, withstand any and everything that came at my way because you are anxious, you're excited. There's a lot of unknown. 
and you're competing on a high level. And for lack of a better word, you don't want to make a fool out of yourself or your family on TV either. <laughs> so you're, you're trying to, you know, constantly go at it at 100 percent, if not 200, because you're aiming to win and you're aiming for a prize to be able to, you know, to, to particularly change your life. And you want other people, you know, to be able to model behind that. So, yeah, I think it's super important and it has definitely, you know, paved the way for other people. Do you have um, one or two advice for um, a young African-American chefs? I have two. The first one is, is don't be afraid to share information. You know, I talk to a lot of my chef peers and we talk as much as we can on a daily basis, a weekly basis through our busy lives. And we share information. What I mean by that is just because we operate separate, separate businesses doesn't mean that we can't help each other grow because in order to grow, your community has to be strong and your community base within each other has to be strong too. The other thing is, is, you know, put your head down and work hard. A lot of chefs, a lot of young culinarians, you know, when it gets tough, we back, we shy away from hard work. There's a lot of things that I don't want to do that I have to do. There's a lot of things that I don't want to do that I need to do. And there's a lot of things that I don't want to do that I must do. And having some balance in your life, meaning, you know, it's great to drive and work hard in a restaurant, but make sure that you take time for yourself. So, you know, you don't go for lack of a better word, AWOL. You know, you see a lot of chefs are are losing their their emotional equilibrium and you know stay close to your family your friends and find that time to be able to vent when necessary because if not it becomes bottled up and what we don't realize our body is one temple and if we're constantly bottling up those anger and frustrations and we're working hard all day our body starts to wear down and so does our mind looking back at your your career you have traveled in different parts, you know, of the world. You have been in Europe, Greece, you have been to South America, in Peru. Of course, you travel throughout the United States. And I I'm just want to know a little bit about how did these experiences influence your cooking style? You know, I like meeting different people. Did I start with that? You know, everyone's different. Everyone has a story. Everyone has a background. You get to learn. And to quite honestly, one of the biggest things I take away from that is the continuous respect of the craft, the food, and the people. I'll go one that that is still endeared to my heart. And we talk about, you know, working with the Peruvians. I mean, probably some of the most aggressive chefs I have met in my entire career, but I have the, the most immense respect for them because they come in every day, they work hard, they're very into themselves and their craft and their food and where they come from. When I look at how we curated the menu, so I was the opening executive chief chef for Tanta, which ran by Gaston Curio in Chicago. And so learning about their food and the culture and where they come from and their families and things like that, it made me feel like I was at home with my own food, but then living through their food and how they treat their, their food and their families. And probably some of the best ceviche I had in my entire life, you know, but they do it very, very differently. And it's that sense of pride that I think sometimes we forget, you know, to be able to, to curate and do. And when I look at my travels during the stadiums, you know, our job was to create a menu that was locally with that stadium and to learn more about where the food and the culture comes from and to take pride into what someone cultivated way before I was born. is super awesome. And so when I look at my career now and having, you know, a, real, a, a well-rounded experience, so like when you talk about the menu of Bugsy and Myers, my executive sous chef worked for, uh, he used to work at Haleo for Jose Andreas. And so when you look at the ceviche, it's a, it's a ceviche on the menu, it's a scallop ceviche, and it's so Latin inspired 
And so the collaboration on that, you know, it, it, it has a nice feel of what we both know and what we kind of grew learning through our culture from other cultures and companies. So, you know, it, it, you, you go, you grow a different appreciation for a lot of, you know, for a lot of things like that. When you talk about Europe, you know, I grew up on red beans and rice and I, on a show, you know, on a show of Vegas Chef Price Fight, when I started to, to compete, I started to make things that I grew up learning from my grandmother and then things I learned from my travels. So I grew up on black eyed peas. So I made a flagellate yep. of, of black eyed <laughs> peas with, you know, with pork yeah. because it was a twist on what I did on what I learned, but it's still homage sure. to what I know. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. So you're saying the ceviche that you have uh, tasted in, in Peru is very different. So how, how different is it? One of the first differences, they don't say ceviche with a V. They say ceviche with a B. Sure. Most ceviches are curated with a lot of lime to cook the ceviche, where with the Peruvians, they make what they call a, a leche de tigre, which is the milk of a tiger. And that is a combination of ice, fresh lime juice, habanero, cilantro, and the bulbs of a red onion. So you get the white part. And so when it's all blended together, and then usually some white fish, something like a flounder or halibut that gets blended in with it, and we will use the, the fluke trim, you know, and then blend that and then strain it, and that was the base for the ceviche, and obviously a lot of salt. And so the Peruvians live in the moment. So nothing is marinated, you know, the day before, hours before. That ceviche gets tossed, you know, day of or, or to order. And then there's a more oh, wow. squeeze of lime juice in there and habanero and thinly sliced red onions. And I'm telling you, like, I would eat ceviche every single day. Wow. And that's what I'm saying. When you travel, when you work, you become a part of that culture and that family. Almost like the flesh of the fish or the shellfish are like really slightly, I would say, you know, in brackets, like uh, cooked, you know, with, uh, with the citrus then. Because you know, I've seen some recipes where, as you, you're right, that the, usually you, you leave, uh, you know, it's almost like a marinade. And, you know, you have like, you know, those shrimps or fish or, you know, scallops, like staying in, uh, in the marinade with citrus for a bit longer. That's interesting. So besides travels, uh, do you have other like, culinary influences? And of course, your grandmother. You know, friends at friends. You know, when I visit, you know, friends' restaurants, you know, we poach off each other, <laughs> you know, we mm -hmm. look at our sure. menus and our sets and, you know, we, you don't exactly make their recipe, but then you're like, wow. So I'll give an example, again, going back to, you know, my friend in Chicago, Eric, you know, when uh, he was working on this restaurant, he and I was working on his recipes and I love pimento cheese. And so let's talk really quickly, you know, about a burger and that burger you can find online. I wanted to make a really good burger. And so I made a pimento cheeseburger. Now, Obviously, I take it out the time to make pimento cheese. You can find pimento cheese in your local store. I love a really nice soft brioche bun. I made house-made pickles. It's got some salty, sweet notes. And pimento cheese what is what I call the caviar of the South. And so Chef Eric wanted to put a pimento cheese platter, you know, on his menu with, you know, little small biscuits and also cornbread. And so we compared our pimento cheese with mine. I took my experience in working at a barbecue restaurant, and I wanted some smoky notes in there. And so I added, you know, smoked jalapenos along with the pimentos to give it a little bit more of a smoky flavor. And because I, you know, I'm about the triple B, beer, bourbon and barbecue. So from time to time, I may switch up the recipe and I'll throw some beer in there, you know, I'll make a beer cheese, you know, to add different flavoring. And where I got that from is that pimento cheese originated in Louisville. And in my travels, again, I love bourbon. I went to a bar. I went to a bourbon bar and they 
put up some crackers and pimento cheese in front of me and I didn't know what it was. And the guy was, you know, told me it was complimentary and I take a sip of bullet and I started to dig in. I was like, holy cow, this is great. And so I started to study what pimento cheese was and I'm like, well, I got to have that. And so that became a part of, you know, my menu set and became, you know, indigenously famous for a burger that I created, you know, a year or so ago as a pimento cheeseburger. So if you talk about the burger and then you, you, you know, that would be your suggestions, how like a, like a home cook, you know, a food enthusiast can, can prepare like a, a burger being like, a, you know, Lamar Moore style. That would be something with uh, the pimento cheese. So how, how, what would you suggest them to do? Absolutely. You know, especially in this time where a lot of people are cooking at home, you know, I prefer, you know, France patties because they're super thin they cook quicker. But, you know, there are some recipes you can find online where I've done what I call like the mama burger where you go to the store and you buy like the ground beef and ground chuck, you make your own nice patty, you know, sear it in a, in a nice hot pan with just simple salt and pepper because I like the flavor of the meat. I like my burger medium. You know, you get a couple slices, some really good cheddar cheese. And, you know, again, if you're not, you know, looking to make pimento cheese, I know Whole Foods has great pimento cheese. You can slap on there and house pickles, maybe some chips and fries on the side and a beer. And I'm telling you, you got some good eating with a, with a classical easy burger to make at home. Do you put like a special uh, sauce in the burger or? No, you know, it's just with the pimento cheese is super creamy because the pimento cheese has mayo in there. So I don't add anything else in there. So you get the creaminess of the pimento cheese. You get a little bit of bite and saltiness from the pickles. And then you have slices of cheddar on there just to give that extra gooeyness. And then you're going to toast the brioche bun with some butter. I mean, who doesn't like butter on a bun? You know, and then you got the fattiness from, from from the burger patties. And, and, you know, I tell a lot of people, if obviously, if you're a vegan and you want to put, you know, a Boca burger on there or a, a Impossible burger, I used to do that, too. That works. If you're into turkey, turkey works very, very well. If you're into chicken, you can put a chicken breast on there. You can even do fried chicken on there. I, I definitely don't mind that. So there's a lot of versatility with that. And that's why I made it, you know, to that, that, this, that level of simplicity, because they, you can interchange how you want, you know, to make that burger. So I, I would like to dig in a little bit about your creative, you know, approach. So how do you go about creating like a new dish, you know, for a menu? And what's your source of inspiration, you know, first? And then after that, what's, you know, what's the next steps? Well, first and foremost, I look at, you know, what's local, what's in the grocery stores. We always want to take care of our farmers. You know, what's local in an indigenous to an area. Most of the time when I'm creating something, it's something that I really like eating. <laughs> so like. I love fried chicken. You know, we just tested a, a menu item with the fried chicken. And actually, coincidentally, it's a fried chicken that kind of helped me propel me to win the show. And it's going to hit the menu here in the next two weeks because it's something that, you know, I grew up on. I love. I love a really good fried chicken if it's done right. You know, I love chicken and waffles. And, you know, I do a play on on things that I enjoy. You know, we had, you know, Mexican corn on the menu and, or cream corn and very similar to what I have in Chicago. In Chicago, when I decided to do Mexican corn, because we get local Indiana corn, which is super sweet and great. And I think it'll be great on the menu. I, uh, it reminded me of being in California and I would get off work at certain times. You see, you know, the little lady with the little cart, and she's dipping it in butter and then the mayo and the cheese and the chile or the tahine and then lime. And so I took those same, you know, notes and I'm like, why not do that here? And I would do it with a twist. You know, again, I had, you know, barbecue background. So instead of putting tahine, I put my own barbecue spice on there you know, just to do something different. So, and a lot of my inspiration too comes from my cooks. You got cooks that work in a lot of different places and, 
you know, they have a lot of recipes that are embedded into them. And, you know, we make family meal a lot of times that turn into a great, you know, dish. I'll tell you one mistake. A lot of great mistakes, you know, chefs will tell you turn into some of the best recipes. So a couple of years ago, I was working in a stadium and I love to drink sweet tea and I would make sweet tea for my team. And so one day we were prepping and I go to drink sweet tea. I get downstairs to my office and I take a sip and I immediately spit it out. The reason why, because someone sabotaged, you know, playing a joke, sabotaged the sweet tea and they put a lot of salt in it. And I didn't want to throw it away. And I was like, because I got five gallons of this. And I was like, you know what? Let me throw a pork loin in here and brine it and see how it comes out. So now I have a recipe for a sweet tea brine pork chop. And that came about <laughs> right, because cool. of that. Which ended up, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I ended up kind of doing the same thing on the show. I brined it with a little bit of sweet tea and, you know, a little pickling spice in there. And now I sweet tea brine pork chop. So some mistakes come into some of your best recipes. Okay, Chef, I, I'm looking at the time. I want to make sure that I'm uh, respectful of yours and you set your day off. So uh, I know that uh, I am uh, sitting in between, uh, you know, your bourbon and, and your cigar. So <laughs> I just want <laughs> no to... To finish with uh, a series of rapid fire questions, if you're, you're okay with that. Let's say like you and I, you know, I travel, I'm going to Vegas. And uh, so you and I are going on a tasting tour in Vegas. So what are like the, and I understand you are recently there. So, but what are like the five spots you will take me to? Definitely got to stop at Bugsy and Meyer Steakhouse. I think that's super important. I love going to Beauty and Essex by Chris Santos and the Tao Group in Cosmo. Uh, Haleo is really, really good in the Cosmo as well. Sometimes I have a taste for some really good breakfast and lunch. There's this restaurant called Hex that's absolutely outstanding that I love. There's a Chicago-style restaurant that's in Vegas called Joe Seafood and Steak that I think is delightful. And then I'm going to go super casual. There's this place called Lolo's Chicken and Waffles that's about five minutes from my house. And I go probably once every two weeks. And it's super casual and super great. And they do an awesome job with their food. And if we want to go after that and have a great like a bourbon tasting, which bar are you going to bring me to? If you're doing a bourbon tasting, they actually do cigars and bourbon. I can't think of it right now. It's super awesome. Chill. There's another place called Davidoff that's in the fashion mall. They have an extensive amount of bourbons and also they do cigars as well. Because to me, that goes hand in hand. Um, <laughs> and there's another place called, I can't think of the name of it. It's in a Tivolo area right outside of Summerlin. They do an awesome job. It has a high selection of bourbons and whiskeys. What's your favorite guilty pleasure food? Oh my gosh. My favorite guilty pleasure is a package of Oreos from the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> I, so that's I what you not, eat. man. <laughs> that's what you eat yeah. when you are back home after like the one, uh, one o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning. Oh, uh, you one know, o'clock in the morning, and... <laughs> it's Oreo cookies and Ruffles potato chips. Yes. Okay. Something about sweet and salty, man. I love it. Okay, <laughs> and cool. I'm, double, I'm double fisting on top of that. <laughs> <laughs> What's the three cookbooks that inspired you the most? Marcus Samuelson, Red Rooster. Kitchen Confidential by the late, and it's not a cookbook, but it's a biography. I love uh, Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential. Made me think more about how I wanted to be a chef. And can't think of the name of the cookbook. It's by Alton Brown. It's his first one. And I actually got that book signed. I love his scientific and his easy approach to cooking. I can't think of the name of it right now, but that was one of my favorites. And I still reference that book to this day. What's your biggest pet peeves in the kitchen? Biggest pet peeves is people that are lazy and don't move around. I despise when I'm walking in the kitchen, somebody's in front of me walking slow. 
because that means that tells me that you don't have an actual go to get to do something. And we're always on a go and we move very rapidly fast. And that drives me insane. <laughs> okay. Last question. Besides like the classics, uh, you know, mayo, ketchup and all of this, what condiments, spice or sauces do you like to have at hand, on hand at Ooh. home? You must be all in my genre because I do not like ketchup. <laughs> <laughs> I do not like ketchup. Jalapeno aioli, garlic aioli, and ranch is at the top of my list. Okay. Chef, thank you so much, you know, for being, um, you know, on the show. I'm really, I was really excited to, um, you know, to have you on. I hope you had a, you had a good time. And uh, I hope that uh, we'll uh, have the opportunity to uh, meet face to face, you know, when the, the situation of the, the pandemic will be like to whatever the new norm is going to be. Absolutely. I had a great time. And yeah, I look forward to meeting you and uh, having some bourbon and whiskey and cigars. Absolutely. And, and a cigar as well. <laughs> yes. Very good. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Chef Lamar Moore, and I cannot wait to fly out to Vegas, taste his food, and enjoy a bourbon and a cigar with him. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a chef or with a food enthusiast. And please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Flavors Unknown. Again, today I want to give a shout out to a great forum on Facebook. This is a Facebook group called uh, The Learning Chefs. They are done by chefs and for chefs, and they have a lot of educational uh, resources for chefs. So please check it out. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.